The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody that is a New England Patriots fan. I am your host, James Murphy, a.k.a. Murph, and the New England Patriots are officially the number two seed in the American Football Conference. Who would have thought? Certainly not me. I'm doubting you didn't think this, and I know all the media coverage in the NFL did not see this coming at all. We were on the brink of becoming the number one seed in the AFC, only if the Browns were able to defeat the Ravens last night, but that is neither here nor there. The New England Patriots currently sit at 8-4, and four, where they are 6-1 and one in the conference, and they are the number two seed in the conference. We have so much to talk about. Patriots, Red Sox, MLB work stoppage, and of course the Boston Bruins, like I mentioned on Friday, how I would talk about them here on Monday. I hope you had a fantastic weekend, and thank you so much for joining me. Here on Murph's Boston Sports Talk, this is episode number 109. Holy smokes, we are just cruising through these episodes as we get closer and closer and closer to one-year anniversary. Did anyone ever see that coming? I mean, something I only dreamed of, but it's right on the cusp. We are 11 months into this wonderful journey, and oh, it is so, so awesome. But anyways, hopefully you had a fantastic weekend, like I said, and hopefully you have a great week on the horizon as well. Baseball. Let's just kind of hammer out some Red Sox topics. Actually, really, there's only one, and that is the Boston Red Sox signing right-handed pitcher Michael Walker. Now, this is definitely a name that I'm all set with. This is definitely someone that I don't think the Red Sox needed. I really don't, I mean, I guess it's a good move to give yourself someone who's had a little bit of success in years past, and it's someone that is, you know, a cheap option, a kind of a bridge player. So, you know, Connor Seabold, Jay Groom, and a bunch of those younger prospects have an extra year to develop because you don't want to rush them, right? I mean, look at Tanner Houck. He's 24 now, and he's just now going to become a full-time big league starter. But Red Sox signed Michael Walker to a one-year contract with $7 million the other day. I think it was on Saturday he signed. I think it was on Saturday he signed. 
and yeah, last year he did not go. He did not do so well with the Tampa Bay Rays. He went three and five with a 5.05 ERA in 29 games, where 23 of those were starts. Um, that sucks. That re- that really really sucks. I honestly would rather have a young pitcher out there, just shooting the shit and just throwing, and have like a six ERA, rather than him. I totally understand it because you don't want a, a young player to go through that. It's just, I feel like this is kind of a reach. I know he's had some success with the Cardinals before. I don't know what kind of success he had 2020 on the Tampa Bay Rays run. If he was with that, I should probably look this up, shouldn't I? Michael Waka. Let's see. Because, I mean, he was a, a good pitcher for uh, a handful of seasons. He was. All right, let's see. Here we go. Um... Okay, no, he was with the Mets uh, in 2020 with a 6.62 ERA. 2019 is with the Cardinals with a 4.76 ERA. In 2018, at 3.2 ERA. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, it's just, what's his career ERA? Just give me that. Give me his career numbers here. Career number, 4.14 ERA, solid. 68, uh, 63 and 48. In 202 games pitched, 181 starts, over 1,026.1 innings, and a career 1.33 whip. I mean, I guess. I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, but like I said, this is just a bridge, bridge signing, really. Obviously, he's not going to be on the Red Sox next year or in years to come. But ugh, I, I just, when you see the Red Sox in on names like Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Steven Matz, I guess Robbie Ray for a little bit. Obviously, Eduardo Rodriguez you were in on. It's like, give me one of those guys. Like, guys, I know I sat here and said, that, you know, I'm not a big fan of Robbie Ray. I don't want to give him like a seven-year contract. You know, I'd rather give Steven Matz kind of a, you know, a couple-year contract. Or I'd rather give Justin Verlander the contract. I, I've talked about all these guys. Scherzer, Erod, all of them. When you're so close to having one of those really good to great superstar players, right? You know, call Erod a really good pitcher. Call Scherzer a superstar. And the rest of them are somewhat in between. You're so close to that, to having one of those guys in your rotation. Verlander goes back to Houston. Erod goes to Detroit. Steven Matz, he signed somewhere. Where did Steven Matz go? He signed somewhere. I forget where. Oh, he's currently still a free agent. I thought I saw that he was leaning somewhere. I thought he signed a contract with somebody. Yeah, he signed Yeah, he signed with the Cardinals. Okay, Wiki, Wikipedia said that he's still a free agent. But no, yeah, he signed with the Cardinals. And... Max Scherzer's on his way to the New York Mets, supposedly. Robbie Ray, we don't know yet. So you go out and sign Michael Walker. Now, this is the perfect Heim Bloom signing. It really is. Cheap, veteran, one-year deal, kind of get you through the season. Good little long-relief guy if you got to put him in the bullpen like you did with Garrett Richards and Martin Perez. So it's not the end of the world. It's just when you see those bigger names, you just really hope and root for one of those bigger names instead of Michael Walker. 
That's really the only thing Red Sox related I have. I, Rafael Devers was named to the All MLB Second Team uh, last week. That's really nothing to talk about all too much. But one thing I do want to talk about that is baseball related, but not necessarily Red Sox related, is the impending MLB work stoppage. Now I've kind of hinted to this in episodes past. I've kind of, you know, hinted about it. I've talked about it a little bit. Byron Buxton agrees to a seven-year, $100 million extension with the Twins. Good for him. I just see it popped up on the website. So MLB work stoppage is when the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement between the Players Association and the league, expires. And they got to redo a new one. The NFL's CBA was up two years ago, and they just renewed it. I think this is the first year with the renewal in place. But it would be, if MLB had a work stoppage, it would it would be the first one since the 94-95 season. That is when the players went on strike towards the end of 94. December 2nd, just a couple of days. Was that Thursday? December 2nd, that's the big day to look out for because if the agreement is not in place by then, baseball is going to flatline, completely flatline. The thing expires on the 1st. You can work through the expiration date, but once midnight, December 2nd hits, done. <laughs> done. So here's an article by uh, Dane Perry that he came, uh, came out with about a month ago but I still think it's relatively recent enough to talk about because there hasn't been a lot of movement at all in anything in terms of the Players Association and the league. Major League Baseball appears headed for its first work stoppage since 1994-95 player strike. A work stoppage beginning on December 2nd is, quote, almost certain. The current collective bargaining agreement, or the CBA, the negotiated document that governs all aspects of the working relationship between players and teams expires on December 1st. According to the veteran reporter Bloom, neither side expects a new CBA to be hammered out before then. Bloom writes, quote, Negotiations have been taking place since last spring, and each side thinks the other has not made proposals that will lead toward an agreement replacing the five-year contract that expires, on, expires at 11.59 Eastern Time on December 1st. As well, Bill Madden tweets that those inside the game are indeed preparing for such possibility. Bill Madden tweeted, I'm hearing as a prelude to the likely lockout by the owners December 1st, the winter meetings in Orlando are being canceled. Which, you know, Winter meetings seems like a week in the middle of December where all the teams will go down there, like all team representatives, GMs. All uh, free agent players will go down there as well and their agents and just work out trades, work out free agent signings and whatnot. Labor stoppages have happened before once the current CBA expires as a lever to hasten negotiations. Given how far we are from spring 2022, there's no reason at this point to fret over any kind of altered schedule or lost games. As well, the December 1st expiration date is at this writing still more than a month away. However, we're now like three days away. A December 1st lockout, however, would also, in essence, put a freeze on the free agent process. And in the lockout, and if the lockout drags on, 
then the offseason calendar could become all too compressed for a normal run-up to the 2022 season. While, as noted, players and owners have enjoyed a long run of labor peace, unprecedentedly long since the first CBA was hammered out in the late 1960s, several complicated economic issues make another such offseason less likely. Less likely. The players, as represented by the Major League Baseball Players Association, MLBPA, likely have ambitious negotiation agendas designed to recapture a dwindling share of league revenues, push back against the, quote, tanking phenomenon that's seeing teams choose to be non-competitive and then also address service time manipulation by clubs. That's hardly an exhausted list, but it hints at the broad scope of the current talks. Literally, I've talked about all of these subjects on this podcast at some point in time. Maybe not so much the the share of league revenues because that's not really my business. That is meant for someone who has a higher paycheck than me or a paycheck at all, I should say, right? But the tanking in baseball, I've talked about this several times whether it was the beginning of the year, whether it was during the course of the year. I despise tanking. Now, if you're going to do it for one year, that's fine. Sometimes teams just need a reset year. Look at the Red Sox most recently in 2020. They just had to hit the reset button, fold in that season, and just live to see you know a few more seasons. Obviously, COVID 2020, a little different. 60 games, you know, so many teams make the playoffs, whatever. Sometimes teams just naturally suck. Maybe they're good and they're just sucking that year. It happens. But if you look back, notable teams in the past, the Marlins, the Rangers, the Tigers, the Orioles, the Mariners for a handful. See, I know they played good this year, but the Mariners are, are, are one of those teams. The Pirates, the Diamondbacks, those are all teams that usually suck year in and year out. Usually, right? And like I said, I know the Mariners had a a good year. The the Orioles were good, you know, like seven years ago. The Rangers were in the World Series 10 years ago. But like how far ago, how far back I'm going? When was the last time the Pirates were in the playoffs? I think like 2015 when Garrett Cole was still on the team. The Marlins, I know they made the playoffs last year, but so didn't 15 other teams because they expanded to 16 playoff teams. Besides then, when was the Marlins last in the playoffs? When was the last time the Diamondbacks were in the playoffs? Teams will tank. Look at the Astros, for instance. The Astros, they sucked for a handful of years, whether they were in the National League or just switching to the American League. They were still pretty bad. And through that, they were able to get, at the top of the draft, Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman. And I believe George Springer, too. I think four years they hit on all four picks. And then, obviously, you know, those picks need to develop. They need to become stars and then superstars. You need to make outside moves as well in order to become, you know, a really great team for a handful of seasons. But that's exactly that's how it started, by them tanking, by them sucking. Like I said, I'm okay with a team sucking for a year. 
maybe even two years. Because being competitive and being a good team in baseball is not hard. I mean, not easy, excuse me. It's very hard. But like I said, you're seeing these teams year in and year out, whether it's deliberately or not, just suck. I know some people from time to time will kind of joke about delegation. They kind of joke about it in the NFL with the Jaguars, how the best this team, the best team in like the minor leagues plays against the worst team in the big leagues, and then the winner will become the major league team, and the loser will become the minor league team. They do that in soccer, like a European league in soccer. I'm not sure which one, but they do do it over there. I oh, It's so annoying where a handful of years, some teams will be good, and that's fine. Good for them. You know, the Yankees have been good. They've had a 500 record for the past, what, like 30 years? 30 seasons. Red Sox have kind of gone in and out a little bit. The Rays, they sucked for a while, but now they've been one of the most competitive teams the past decade. Those teams are good, and they're good for over a handful of seasons, which is great for the league. But then when you have teams, I would, I rattled off seven teams, the Mariners, the Rangers, the Diamondbacks, um, the Pirates, the Marlins, the... Uh, who else am I missing? Is that five? I don't know. There's like seven. I kind of named seven teams. That suck year in and year out. Oh, the Tigers and Orioles. That suck year in and year out. That have over 100 plus losses. MLB standings. Let's just look at 2021. Here, shall we? Let's look at all of them. Orioles had 110 losses this year. The Rangers had 102. Like I said, the Mariners had a good year this year. Uh, I'm not going to count 2020. I need Orioles in 2019, 108. Tigers, 114. The Royals, 103. The Mariners, they did have 94 losses uh, in 2019. See, 2018. I'm just looking at the American League here. Orioles, 115. The Rangers, 95. The White Sox, 100. The Royals, 104. The Tigers, 98. 2017. Uh, American League, please. Let's see. The Tigers, 98. The White Sox, 95. And I'll do one more. I'll do 2016 just to prove my point. The, actually, no, the Rays are a little anomaly there. Twins, 103. Rangers did very good in 2016. Now let's look at the National League. Let's look, let's start back from the top here in 2021. The National League. The Nationals, 97. The Marlins, 95. The Pirates, 101. The Diamondbacks, 110. I'm going to skip 2020, so let's go to 2019. Marlins, 105. The Pirates, 93. The Padres, this year they were terrible, finishing last in the division. Oh, that was in 2019. I'm stupid. Ignore that. Marlins, 98. This is 2018. Marlins, 98. Padres, 96. Giants, 89. Reds, uh, 95. 2017. Giants, 98. Phillies, 96. Mets, 92. Uh, let's see. The Red, the Pirates, 87. 2016. No 100 lost teams. Uh, the Diamondbacks, 93. The Padres, 94. Braves, 93. The Phillies, 91. Reds, 94. So it goes in and goes out. But generally speaking, there's a handful of teams that are just at the absolute bottom of the barrel. And more often than not, it's usually similar... Similar culprits. 
There will be years that teams do good. And there will be years that teams do bad. But this tanking phenomenon, you see it big time. Oh, you see it big time in the NBA. And it is disgusting. They'll tank for the number one pick. Even though it's a lottery, so you're not even guaranteed the number one pick. Oh, it's so annoying. Hopefully, MLBPA and the league can figure out how to fix this tanking phenomenon. And then the other thing that they want to address is service time being manipulated by teams. I've sat here countless times expressing my hatred for the arbitration system. I hate it. I don't mind contract renewals. So for those that are unfamiliar with the process for young players in Major League Baseball, if you're a player and you're 20 years old, you make it to the big leagues, right? You play the rest of the season. At the end of that season, you're up for contract renewability, which means you'll make, I think, around league minimum. And it's like 7500000 I believe. And the team just automatically renews your contract. I don't hate that because you may be a bust. You may be a great player. The team is not exactly sure yet where you are. So I don't mind it. And teams can do that for three years. So for your first three years, at 20, 21, and 22, you are making $750,000. Doesn't sound sound too bad. But when you're a 20-year-old and your name is Ronald Acuna, Juan Soto, Wander Franco... It's going to suck. It's going to suck. Then, after your fourth year with the team, or going into your fourth year with the team, you are now eligible for arbitration. I hate, 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 hate arbitration. Arbitration is where you and your representative, your agent, will look at yourself and see how much you're worth. Then, the team will do the same thing and see how much you're worth. Say you hit, it doesn't matter what your stats are, but say you and your agent say that you're worth, you're worth $5 million, but the team looks at your stats and sees what you, and thinks you're worth $2 million. Well, unless a long-term contract isn't decided, it will go to arbitration. The, The negotiation will go to arbitration, which is in February before spring training and an Independent arbitrator, <clears throat> independent arbitrator will look at your stats and what you think you're worth, your stats and what the team thinks you're worth. And that independent arbitrator will decide what your salary will be for that year, whether it's $5 million, what you think you're worth, or $2 million, and what the team thinks you're worth. And if the arbitrator sides with the team, then you're only making $2 million. If the arbitrator you know, sides with you, you'll be making $5 million. And you have to play it very strategically because if you just put, oh, I'm worth $25 million, well, he's going to look at the stats and be like, no, you're not. Just go with the team. $2 million, that's kind of what you're valued at. And obviously the team has to do the same exact thing. You know, They don't want to undervalue you. They don't want to say you're worth you know, 500000 when you're actually worth $5 million because then they're gonna, the arbitrator will automatically side with the player. That process goes for three full seasons. So for three years, you're making $750,000. Then the next three seasons, your salary is decided by an independent arbitrator. And if you're starting at 20, so you go 20, 21, 22, contract renewability, 
23, 24, 25 is when you can make your first big contract. Now, at 25 years old, signing your first big league deal, you sign a 10-year deal, whatever, that's 35 years old. Doesn't sound terrible. But here's Bobby Dahlback, who first came up in 2020 at 25 years old. He's now 26 years old in 2021. One more year of contract renewability is 27, then three years of arbitration, and he won't see his first big league contract until he is 30 years old. 30, 31 years old. That is asinine. He won't see big league money or big time money until he's 31 years old. Oh, it's so stupid. It is so, so stupid. I hate it so much. I don't mind the contract renewability portion of it because a team may not know what you're worth or how good you actually are. You could have just tore it up you know, for 60 games when you were called up and then you might suck or you might suck for a little bit and you go back to the minor leagues, but then you come back and then you're a star. So I think three years of contract renewability isn't a bad idea. Like I said, I like that. I don't mind it. But the arbitration process is the most dumbest thing I've ever heard. These players should not have to wait until they're 31 years old to sign a big league contract. They shouldn't. You have to be 19, 20 years old in order to be 25, 26 years old to sign that 10-year extension because when Bobby Dahlback's up at 31 years old, no one's going to sign him to a 10-year extension, pushing him all the way to 41. I mean, look at Wander Franco. He's like 19 years old, 20 years old. He just signed a, what was it, 10-year, 12-year deal? And that's going to push him till... 33, and then he can sign another four-year, five-year deal after that if he wants. I just think it's completely stupid. It's just absolute asinine. And another, uh, another perspective of the manipulation by clubs is that you need to have a 130 at-bats if you're a hitter or 50 innings pitched as a pitcher. If you are under that threshold then you are still considered a rookie. Look at Randy Rosarena. I believe he first came up in 2019 with the Cardinals. Randy Rosarena. And he just won uh, Rookie of the Year this year. Let me just pull up some stats here. 2019, he came up with the Cardinals and had 20 at-bats. And then last year in 2020 with the Rays, he had 64 at-bats. So he's not a rookie because he's under that 130 threshold. Obviously, playoff time doesn't count. You know, the Rays went a deep run in the playoffs. He was up there. Doesn't count. It's just regular season. In 2021, he had 529 at-bats. So, a little different, right? little different. And then pitchers, same thing. You can go out there, have three starts, accumulate 18 innings, get sent down, see you next year, do it again next year, throw, uh, throw 20, get sent down, see you next year, and then the third year, you're a rookie. And while those players are considered rookies, they are contract renewability. You cannot enter arbitration if you have less than two years of experience. So Randy Rosarena, although he's entering his fourth big league season, technically his fourth big league season, one with the Cardinals, and now he will be entering his third in 2022 with the Rays, 
he cannot enter arbitration until 2023, where he turns 28. And then three years of arbitration, 28, 29, 30. And then he's going to be able to make his first big league contract then. The dumbest friggin' thing. Like, I don't mind it to a degree. I like it to a degree because, you know, Jaron Duran gets brought up for a little bit. Give him, like, you know, 60 at-bats. Let him feel it out. And then the following year, he becomes a full rookie because the following year in 2022 for us, the Red Sox, he'll be probably starting every day, I'm assuming. I'm assuming he'll be a starter every single day. Jaron Duran. Let me just look him up real quick. How many at-bats he had this year? He had 107 at-bats. All right. He had 107 at-bats this year. And if he only has, say, 20 at-bats this year in 2022, whether it's because of injury or whether he was just you know, pushed down in AAA and then later brought up but still only had 20 at-bats, 2023 is when he'll become a full-time rookie. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. I don't mind it for one year. I don't mind it. That one year where Randy Ro- Randy Rosarena only had 64 at-bats for the Rays in 2020. I don't mind that. Give them a little bit, give them a cup of coffee here in the big leagues, let them taste it out, let them feel it out. They have the off-season, then they come back in 2021 or I should say the following year and they're ready to rock and roll. But the thing is, you know, he had 20 at-bats in 2019, then 64 in 2020, and then a full season in 2021. The three-year rookie, I hate it. I hate the three-year rookie. I don't mind the two-year rookie where you come up for a little bit, and then the following year, you're the full-time rookie. It's just the rules. It's just the way it is. It works for both hitters and pitchers. Do they need to decrease from 130 to maybe 100? Maybe. Because like I said, it is a good tool for teams to use. Look at Jaron Durant. He was able to come up. He was able to get a feel for the big leagues because it's a completely different speed. It's a completely different level compared to the AAA minors. Now he'll have a full offseason to prepare for major league pitching. He knows what to expect. Maybe some nerves are out. He knows how Fenway Park works. He knows how the crowd works. And then come 2022, he is ready to rock and roll. But Jaron Duran, he's 25 years old. He just turned 25 back in September. So his first full rook season, rookie season in 2022, it'll be 26, which is con- his first year of contract renewability. Then two more, puts him at 28. Then three years of arbitration, puts him at 31. I just don't think it's fair for these big league players to not see their first big payday when they're on the wrong side of 30. Because oftentimes... Teams may stay away from players that are in their 30s or on the wrong side of 30. Because usually in most sports, when you hit 30, it kind of can go downhill. Now, I know baseball is a little bit different because it's less physical than maybe, say, football, basketball. Hockey players play to their 40 all the time. I don't know. I mean, look at Miguel Cabrera. He signed a con- like a big contract when he was like 27, I think, that expires a year or two from now when he's 40. You can just throw him at DH. Jaron Duran, someone like him when he's 31, you know, the name of his game is speed, fielding, and hitting. But when he turns 31, I'm going to assume that speed may take a step back. And that speed is, you know, by direct results going to take that fielding a step back. So there's my massive rant. I know I'm 30 minutes into this episode. I have not talked about 
Patriots. I haven't talked about the Bruins like I said I would. So I'm going to just cut that off right there. I could go on and on and on about baseball, the MLB work stoppage that is looming. I wanted to talk more about the the effects that it has. on. Let me talk about it real quickly. So the effects that it has on the free agent market moving forward, I don't want that ad, is there's five direct impacts. There's Yeah, there's five direct impacts that a work stoppage on December 2nd will have on the league. Free agents won't be able to sign during the lockout. So if Max Scherzer, uh, Carlos Correa, Corey Seager, any of those guys are not signed, pen to paper, before midnight on December 1st or midnight December 2nd, they can't sign until the new CBA is into agreement. That's why you see some players signing, getting the money now, because who knows where the money is going to be for both teams and players post-lockout, if there is what it seems like there was. Um, what about Seiya Suzuki, the Japanese phenom that is coming over from Japan to the big leagues this year? His traditional 30-day posting window will be completely paused, so teams will not be able to bid, negotiate, talk to him, whatever, on Suzuki until the CBA is in an agreement. Um, free agency so far, I've kind of talked about it. Players have been signing contracts just to get it out of the way so they don't have to be um, kind of caught in the middle of no, no man's land. Players are signing now, so they don't have to worry about it when the CBA comes back because who knows where the money will be. But then again, players like Seager, Correa, possibly Max Scherzer looking to get these big-time deals may wait and see where it goes because maybe they'll be able to get more money. Who knows? Can teams make trades? Yes and no. If they're trading players on the 40-man roster, they're not allowed to do that. If they're trading prospects for prospects, they are able to do that because prospect players in AA, AAA are not represented by the MLBPA. And this lockout during the collective bargaining agreement is only between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. And the Players Association does not represent players not on a team's 40-man roster. So trades can still happen technically, but it has to be prospects not on the 40-man roster. If a player is on the 40-man roster... No trades. And then how long would the lockout last? Who knows? It could last just a couple of weeks. It could last a month or two. It could even impact the 2022 season where we're going to lose games. We're going to have to shorten the season and just really kind of jumble it all up, kind of like what we saw in 2020 due to the impacts of COVID-19. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point, but that is a possibility that we have to brace and prepare for if a new CBA is not signed and agreed upon relatively soon okay so that's gonna be my baseball talk i did want to talk about that really quickly before i do move to the patriots who bitch slapped the tennessee titans they absolutely the titans holy smokes it was so i didn't get to watch the game i was here at the shop because murph's card town sports shop is now open on sundays 10 to 4 and like you guys know i don't have cable but i was able to listen to the game though i listened to the game and the Patriots' defense was electric. They gave up a couple big runs. I'll admit it. They gave up a couple big runs. But still, they held Ryan Tannehill to 93 yards. 93 passing yards. 
Dontrell Hilliard had 12 carries for 131 yards, but he had that big breakaway touchdown to you know near the end of the quarter. Uh, Dante Foreman, 19 carries for 109 yards. Like I said, the rushing game looked a little suspect from the defensive perspective. And I know there was no Julio Jones. There was no A.J. Brown for the Titans to throw to. They were thrown to Nick Westbrook, Cody Hollister, Des Fitzpatrick, and bums like that. But still, 93 passing yards on a first-place team or a then-first-place team? That's pretty good. Titans only scored 13 points the entire game. That was all in the second quarter. One was due to a, um, like I said, that Hilliard breakout touchdown towards the end of the half. A couple field goals. A couple missed field goals for the kicker. Who is their kicker? Um, Randy Bullock. Ah, tough. It's tough to see it if you're a Titans fan. But if you're a Patriots fan, you are rejoicing because Mac Jones, 23 for 32 and 310 passing yards, two touchdowns and zero Zero interceptions. Does Mac Jones still suck? All you, all you, all you haters, those Patriots haters, those Mac Jones haters. Does Mac Jones still suck? Comment down below if he does. Exactly, that's what I thought. Running game for the Patriots looked very suspect. Stevenson nine for forty-six. Damian Harris eleven for forty with one touchdown, and that was really it on the ground. That was really it on the ground for the Patriots. I know the passing game and the running game is going to come and go depending on who you're playing, what players are hot, what players are feeling it. Overall, overall, it wasn't bad. And you're able to get, you know, just under 100 yards in total. But I would like to see a, at least 100 yards day in and day out, whether it's combined by Stevenson and Harris, which is most ideal, or if it's by one or the other. So... Running game was very, very good these past few weeks. Yes, a week off can come and go. But going into that Bills game on Monday, which I'll talk about obviously on Friday and Monday's episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk, I would like to see the running game take a next step. But, I mean, Mac Jones was lighting the field up, so how can you take the ball out of his hands when he's doing so well? Like I said, 23 for 32 that is a completion percentage of 72 percent just under 72 percent like i said 310 passing yards that is his second 300 passing yard game of his career and the most passing yards in his career because i think his other 300 game was like 305 or 307 something like that jacoby myers five receptions 98 yards kendrick Bourne, five receptions 61 yards and two touchdowns brandon bolden Four receptions, 54 yards. Just a really good overall offensive day. It really was. 36 points. You are outscoring opponents. Uh, let me do the math here. Hold on. Let me. I should have had this prepared. Let me do the math here. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. All right. 45, 25, that's 70, 77, 72, 20. You are outscoring opponents in your last three games, 106 to 20. Not counting the Panthers game. Don't want to do it. Could do it, but I just, just three games. 106 to 20. If you want to, it's 130 to 26. All right, let's count the Panthers game. All right. In the month of November, you're outscoring opponents 130 
to, what did I say? 26. Absolutely amazing. No one saw this coming from the Patriots as they are now on a six-game winning streak. And they absolutely tore it up since they lost in overtime to the Cowboys, who, side note, they're also struggling themselves. So take it for what you want. Could the Patriots have beaten the Cowboys? Absolutely. But that is a conversation that is well past our time right now. Let's look at the AFC standings because the Patriots, who were the three seed going into this past weekend, is now the two seed. And if the Browns were able to beat the Ravens, the Patriots would be the number one seed right now as we sit here on Monday, November 29th, 2021. However, that was not the case. They did lose. Just a side note, Browns defense played fantastic against Lamar Jackson and the Ravens really slowed them down, only halting them to 16 points. That Browns offense was absolutely atrocious. They had no running game, hardly any passing game, and only scored 10 points themselves. But, geez, Patriots, number two seed in the AFC, budding number one seed. Big matchup against the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo on Monday night. It's going to be a massive game. Everyone needs to tune in for that game. Every single Patriots fan needs to tune in for that game. Because if you lose and the Bills win, you will go to 8-5. and five, They will go to 8-4. and four. You guys are going to essentially flip-flop where they will probably become the number two, number three, depending where everything else lies, and you will fall down to the wild card anywhere between five and seven, obviously depending on what else happens. Big game. Absolute big game. I sat here. I sat here at the beginning of the month, right after that Chargers win. Nope, it was after the Panthers win. I said win the next three or four games. Browns, Falcons, Titans, Bills. Going into your bye week, win the next three out of four games. And if you're going to lose one, I'd be okay with you losing that Titans game because that Bills head-to-head matchup for the division is going to be crucial. Well, here you are. You are three for three. That doesn't allow, that does not give you wiggle room to lose. Does not give you wiggle room to lose. Here we are at the end of November or the end of that four game stretch that I mentioned. One win away from sweeping that mini series that I, I projected for the Patriots that needed to win three out of four. Can they do it? Absolutely. Will they do it? Possibly. Should they do it? I don't know if they should, but they can. I think they can, and I'm sure you think they can too. That Buffalo Bills game is going to be no easy task. It is not going to be easy task at all. Buffalo Bills are a little, little eh right now. I mean, they just beat the Saints 31 to six on Thanksgiving, but before then they got absolutely smoked by the Colts. They smoked the Jets, and then at the beginning of the month, they lost to the Jaguars 9-6. to God only knows how. But still, this is going to be a fantastic matchup. This is going to be a really, really good game between two interdivision rivals. Well, no. Two, just two division rivals because they're not – Then yeah, inter would be non the same. Yeah, like interconference would be two different conferences. Like the Super Bowl, that's an interconference game. Anyways – Bills, Patriots, December 6th, Monday, 8-15 kickoff. Be there or be square.
Patriots will be going into their bye week right after that where they won't be playing again until December 18th where they go to Indianapolis to play against the Colts on that Sunday night. Is that Sunday night football? That Colts game? December 20th. What day is it? The 18th? No, that's Saturday. Oh, snap. That's right because that game got moved to Saturday because college football will be over. Thursday night football will be over. So all those games will going to be played on Thursday now. Okay, on, on Saturday, excuse me. So that's going to be a good little game right there. Primetime game. Got to get it done. Got to get it done. Listen, you got the Bills, the Colts, the Bills, the Jags, the Dolphins. You can win these last five games. You can. I don't think you will because I don't think you're going to sweep the Buffalo Bills. That Colts game could be tricky. That Jaguars game should be a win. That Dolphins game should be a win. I'm hoping you can squeak one of them out against the Bills. Three and five in your last five games of the regular season. Is that enough? For the playoffs, yes. For the division, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, that's not going to be enough for the number one seed, which we all would want the Patriots to have because, therefore, they don't have to worry about the wild card. They can just go straight to the divisional on whoever they will play next. But if they go three or five in their last five games, I won't be upset. That'll push them to a final record of three and five. That'll be oh, they win three of their next five. Yeah, so that'll be. I'm sorry, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Eleven and six. That's seventeen. Yeah, so they'll go to eleven and six. How do you feel, Patriots Nation? How do you feel if the Patriots finish eleven and six? I think I predicted them at the beginning of the season to be ten and seven. I think I would have to go back and check. Either ten and ten and seven or eleven and six. I was somewhere around there. I think twelve was like the absolute best I had them at, and I think seven was the absolute worst that I had them at. I I, I it's so long ago I don't remember. But eleven and six, I'll take that because that's going to be a playoff spot. Arguably a division win. Not going to get you the, the number one seed. But if you can win four of those next five games, if you can win four of those, now you're 12 and five. That could get you the, the number one seed. That really could get you the number one seed. So these next couple, these next, the rest of the season, we're at that point. The rest of the season for the Patriots, considering where they're currently at, is beyond important. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll save the Bills and Patriots talk until Friday and next Monday's episode. But let's just recap the scores around the league for Week 12, where the Bears defeated the Lions 16-14 to on Thanksgiving, the Raiders beat the Cowboys in overtime, and the Bills defeated the Saints all on Thanksgiving Day. The Bengals slapped the Steelers 41-10. to Bengals taking their spot back in the playoff picture as they push the Steelers down further. Dolphins beat the Panthers. Giants defeated the Eagles 13-7, which is a terrible loss because I sat here and said I really like the Eagles this week. And I also chose the Eagles to win in survival, so now I'm out of survival. <sighs> I lose the dumb games. I really do. I lose the dumb games. Patriots defeated the Titans 36-13, which we already went over. Falcons beat the Jaguars. Colts lost to the Buccaneers after holding a 10-point lead at one point, 10-point in the second half. Buccaneers win 38-31. to 
Jets defeated the te- uh, Texans 21-14. to A lot of people were saying that that Texans was a easy win. Well, clearly it wasn't an easy win because they lost. Broncos defeated the Chargers, really hurting the Chargers' playoff hopes, although the Chargers are the seventh seed as it currently sits. But the Raiders, Broncos, and the Colts are all breathing down their neck, so how long will that last? Who knows? The 49ers defeated the Vikings 34-26. to Oh, I, see, I also hate this one because something in my something in my gut was telling me to pick the Vikings, and I blindly picked the Vikings, and it backfired. Packers beat it, beat the Rams 36-28, like I figured. Ravens defeated the Browns 16-10, hoping for the Browns. It is what it is. Seahawks and the Washington football team play tonight, Monday Night Football, at kickoff at 8-15. Bruins, hockey. Let's just harshly... And directly get into it. They beat the Vancouver Canucks last night, or I should say yesterday, at the TD Garden, 3-2 in regulation. Good win for the Bruins against a crappy team who is seriously struggling. Goals from Brad Marchand, Anton Blood, and David Pasternak as well. Pasternak had seven shots on goal. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. But look, what have I been saying for the Bruins? What have I been saying that the Bruins need to do? Get shots on net, right? Now, they're going against Yaroslav Halak, which is something someone I need to talk about, by the way. I need to talk about Halak, who they're familiar with in practice. Yaroslav Halak is familiar with the Bruins from practice and obviously their past few years together. And the Bruins shot the puck 42 times on Halak. 42. What is my number? What is the number of shots that the Bruins need to shoot on the opposing goalie every single damn game? 35. They shot 42 times. Halak made 39 saves, resulting in three goals. Now, there's really no statistical data that I know of that can confirm my theory of more shots on goal, the more you'll win. I don't think that exists. But the Boston Bruins are clearly a team that does better when they get more pucks on the net. They need to get the pucks on the net. Otherwise, pucks are going to get shot on their net, and then they're not going to win. Vancouver Canucks scored two goals, and Linus Allmark, or Linus Allmark, excuse me, faced 38 shots. Similar to what Halak saw, just a few shots less, and only two goals went in. But if you're thinking to yourself, huh, if they were able to shoot 40 times, would they have been able to get one more on the net? Or one more in the net? Maybe. Maybe. Listen, you're never going to be able to score unless you put the puck on the net. Let their defense, let their goalie put the work in to stop the puck from going in the damn net. If you can shoot the puck 35 times a game, I really do believe it will put you in a good position to potentially win that game. Because if you're only shooting the puck 25 times, just imagine what you could do if you shot the puck 10 more times. How many more scoring opportunities and scoring chances you would have had. Or the possibility of a puck or two squeaking by the goalie. 35 times needs to be the threshold for the Bruins because they are clearly not a team that can put the puck in the net when they don't shoot the puck a lot. 
I mean, they scored two of their go- three goals in the third period yesterday. So, entering the third period, I don't know what the shots was at the time. They were down 2-1. to one. So, when you look at those 42 shots on net, I'm thinking to myself, what if they weren't able to shoot the puck seven extra times? What if they were only able to shoot the puck 32 times? What would those two other, or those 10 other shots resulted in? And in the Bruins' case, it resulted in two goals. Because like I said, you know, for the Bruins, uh, their goalie, Allmark, he faced 38 shots. And if the Canucks were able to put just a handful more on, could that have resulted in a goal to at least tie the game, to force overtime, get a point? Who knows? You'll never know. We'll never know. But the reason why I want to talk about Yaroslav Halak is a very interesting point. Very interesting point here. I said... And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that Jeremy Swayman is the guy moving forward for the Bruins. But he needs a veteran presence. Coaching staff's fantastic. The veteran leadership in your locker room is excellent. But they're not goalies. Well, maybe the goalie coach is a goalie. But Olmark, not a veteran. Halak was a, is a veteran. Rask is a veteran. I said, Swayman's the guy. Bring back Halak. Or... Swayman's the guy, bring back Rask. With Olmark struggling and Swayman doing okay, I think the Bruins should go out and trade for Halak. I really do. Because I'm not a fan of Olmark. I'm really not a fan of Olmark. He had a nice game yesterday, but I'd rather give that to a veteran where the where Swayman plays 67% of the games and the veteran being Halak would play 33% of the games until Rask comes back. If he does come back for you, then you can kind of figure it out then. But the Bruins, I'm telling you, need some kind of veteran presence in between the pipes when Swayman's not playing. In practice, to teach Swayman. I liked Halak. I didn't want to see him go, but he signed with the Canucks, got a nice little contract. Congratulations to him. He still has that contract. But if the Bruins would trade for him, I think it makes your team better in the long run. Now, I'm going to guess that Halak signed with the Canucks or just signed with a different team. So he wouldn't be in that pickle that he was in last year where it was either Swayman or Rask. He was kind of left on the outside looking in, and he just wanted to completely avoid that situation and just sign somewhere else, and I do not blame him for that. So I also don't blame him if he doesn't want to come back here, but obviously in a trade he has no really choice. But until February, at least at the minimum, he'll be the guy alongside with Swayman. But you did pay Olmark some big money, so you're going to have to play him as well unless you look to trade him yourself. I, I don't know. It's it's a complicated situation that the Bruins are in. Could they go out and trade for a cheap veteran who's maybe older, who doesn't need as much playing time, or, or just to teach your young guys? Because I feel like having two young guys in between the pipes during practice and all that is not good long-term. It gives you great versatility now, but those guys need some veteran tutelage. And hopefully if Rask is re-signed and comes back, he can help provide that, and you won't have to lean on Rask all too much. But the thing about Rask and Halak is they've been in the game for a long time. They've made playoff runs. They've been in the playoffs. They know how to face adversity. These young guys not necessarily know how to do that just yet. Therefore, a veteran like Halak, Rask, or whoever it may be would be a tremendous addition to the Bruins because right now, alongside defense, I do think the goaltending is a questionable concern. I've talked about all three phases, offense, defense, and goaltending 
for the Bruins, how each of them is a concern in and of itself. I think the offense will eventually take a turn for the better. I think the defense needs to be fixed in a way that they need another defenseman. And then the goaltending, what I just mentioned. So that is my Bruins segment right there. Not a lot to talk about, but they are currently 18 games into the season. And where they sit, it's not pretty, but it's not bad. They are currently fifth in the Atlantic Division behind the Leafs, Panthers, Lightning, and the Red Wings. They currently have 22 points, and the Lightning and third have 27, so they're not too far back. Their goal differential is now plus 5, which is nice to see because the team in front of you, the Red Wings, has minus 10. So you're hoping that the law of averages will eventually play out where you two will flip-flop, which is really possible only seeing that you're one point behind them and they played four more games than you. Bruins need to go on a hot streak. So don't the Celtics. I'm not going to talk about the Celtics today because I'm... Oh, I'm sick of the Celtics. (laughs) We'll talk about them on Friday, but that is going to do it for today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed what we talked about. Apologize for the rant that I went on in terms of baseball and uh, the the manipulation of the service time, but it's something that's been on my chest for a long time, and I really need to get it off my chest. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for downloading, listening, and enjoying episode number 109 of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. If you enjoyed today's episode, reach out to me via social media at Murph's Card Town and let me know what you thought. Let me know any of your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, anything you want to talk about, discuss, maybe even argue about. Reach out to me at social media and we can do so over there. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please leave those down in the comment section below as I would greatly love to see what you have to say. While you're listening on YouTube, please make sure you like the video if you did enjoy it. And then also hit that giant red subscribe button if you haven't done so already, as I would greatly cons- I would greatly appreciate you considering subscribing to the channel. But like I said, that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. I will catch you on Friday. But between now and then, you guys know that I love you. And you know that I will always, always see you. Thank you.